0: Making Media tells the story of our media business, Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this.
1: Welcome to Making Media.
2: Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier.
1: Gosh, that was such a good start to an interview.
2: Today, we're traveling to that green and pleasant land I call home to speak with the founder of the UK's fastest growing radio station, Louis Timpany. Louis started Fix Radio in 2017 after realizing that the power users of radio weren't being served at all. He was working on a construction site when he noticed that the biggest source of arguments day in, day out was about the radio. No one listens to radio as much as builders. But at the time, there was no station built specifically for them. They had to suffer through repetitive music, endless ads, and segments designed for casual listeners. Six years on, Fix has grown into a national station with some 300,000 listeners. Last year, it was the fastest growing radio in the country. This conversation is a wonderful illustration of how focused you have to be to build a media business. And our conversation with Louis is littered with gems about marketing, commercial partnerships, and connecting with your target market. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as Matt and I did. Louis, I'm really very excited about this, not least because you're our first fellow Brit on the show, and that makes me feel like strength in numbers at long last. We often talk about constraints and niches on this show. You've built a radio station for builders last year. I think it was the fastest growing radio station in the UK, which is a huge achievement. I want to kick off and ask what makes a great radio station in 2023? And maybe if you had a pile. How would you weight the most important things that go into making a
1: brilliant radio station? Wow. You started with a nice easy one there, Dom. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) What makes a great radio station in 2023? It's difficult because there's not only is there a lot of radio stations, but there's also a lot of ways that you can get access to music and content. So it's competitive. I think... In order to win, you need to basically put your audience first. So it's not about us. It's about your audience. Try and serve them as best you can and try and not be something to everyone, but really focus in on what is your audience, what do they want, and super serve that as best you can. And I think that gives you the best chance of success if you can do those things. How did you evaluate the different audio mediums? You
0: went with the radio station, I think it was five, six years ago now that you actually launched it. At the time, podcasts, they were still a lot smaller than they are today, but they were around.
1: What made you actually decide to go with radio? So I'll be honest, I'm not from a radio background. I had no particular desires or passions growing up to get into radio. I was working on building sites and about seven years ago, realized that tradespeople listen to the radio all day, every day. It's a massive part of their life. And I was surprised that there wasn't a station out there directly serving this community. I can expand on that a bit more. But the reality is, with my target market tradespeople, they're listening to radio six, seven hours a day. So it's the number one media option for them. And therefore, it had to be the choice. If we were going to build a brand or a community on one media option, it had to be radio. Can you just flesh that out a
2: bit more in terms of the insight of like, wow, it feels like all these builders are listening to the radio, but the radio feels a bit rubbish for them. What was it within that that gave you those thoughts?
1: So, it was a realization one, what a big part of their life it is. And then, two, I quickly saw that it was pretty much the number one source of arguments each day on site was what radio station was going to get played. So, some of the pain points were like the level of music repetition. It's really interesting. So, the average radio consumer in the UK listens to the radio for about 45 minutes a day. So, almost every radio station is programmed for that listener in mind. And so, What goes into their heads is how can we make that 45 minutes or that hour the best hour of radio that we can, and then they almost repeat it. Us, we don't realize that, but if you're a tradesperson listening all day long, that drives you mad. So that's a real big pain point. And then unrelatable presenters, unrelatable content, adverts that have no relevance to their lives, the structure of the day didn't often fit around working practices. So I notice all of these pain points. And then lastly, from a commercial perspective, it just made so much sense. Like I knew if I could build a pure audience of tradespeople all in one place in an authentic manner, I knew exactly who I picked up the phone to sell my advertising space to. And I know that I could add value to them with what they're doing. Those three things kind of all aligned. And that's when I realized that there's no guarantees is there, but I thought, hey, could be on something there. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And we'll come back to some of that stuff. One thing
2: I'm just so curious about Someone who is in charge of producing five weekly podcasts—that feels like a lot to me. Like, what are the mechanics of a radio station that's on all of the time? What does that look like behind the scenes? Take me into the broadcasting house and talk me through the operation.
1: Don't have a clue, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the man. I'm the man that sells all the advertising space and does all the commercial stuff. No, on a serious note, it's actually remarkably simple. Now, I'd love to sit here and say it's incredibly complex. The like, innovation in radio has been mad. So it's all run by like a scheduling system where you're basically dropping in. So you drop in you know, your music, then there'll be gaps in between the music where your presenters speak, and it's all remote, it's all digital, it's super user-friendly. So the complexities of running a station now are people are running these things from their bedrooms, and a lot of people do. So from that perspective, it's not complicated. Now, someone that works for me running this would probably say, Louis, it's incredibly complicated. (laughs) You don't have a clue what you're talking about. So I don't know which one of those is true, but that's my perception of it. Are the shows live? A mixture. So post-COVID, COVID obviously was a nightmare because no one could get into the studio. So everyone had to do their shows from home. And so we kind of had to maneuver and get used to not doing live content. Almost all of our content is pre-recorded, but we do some as live. So it's like 10 or 15 minutes behind. And that way that you can jump on things that are time sensitive and give a real sense of day. But a majority is all pre-recorded. And how have you sourced the talent? And
0: obviously, you have a sense that there's a missing piece in the market for these tradespeople.
1: But how did you actually go about filling that need and designing what they actually wanted? I went to social media, really. So I looked at Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and I saw who were the really authentic tradespeople, people, the, the influencers that had large numbers of followers and that seemed to be delivering good content for this target market. We then approached them, and then we retrained them as radio presenters and It took a long time to get them to understand the craft of radio and how to deliver a great radio show. What do you mean about retraining? What does that look like? What does a great audio presenter look like? you know I'm blessed with like my PD and the people that run the programming and content side have been in this game for a long time and so have a lot of wisdom on that i mean a lot of it is the basics of building story arcs so how do you keep an audience interested you'll often hear presenters throwing forward to a future bit of content that might come the other side of a break and keeping the audience engaged only delivering one piece of content at one time so in a video, you might say lots of different bits of information, but in radio, they try and just deliver what is the link? What are you actually trying to get across and not trying to overcomplicate it and say too many different things? And then just getting into the flow of like music knowledge, you know, that was so and so from this year, an interesting fact about what went on in that year and just building up things. That's a flavor. I don't boast to be a radio presenter myself or have particular specialisms in that area of running a business, but. That's a bit of a basics. The
0: commercial tease is a radio art. And those that do it well, do it really well. And those that do it poorly, do it really poorly. So that's some good uh, behind the scenes stuff right there.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you see that on YouTube, don't you? Like these guys, they know that they need to keep their audience captive. So they'll be like, at the end of this video, there's going to be something epic. And then you wait the whole time. And then they just like, open a kinder egg or like something really lame. They know how to do that. Yeah, the clickbait has to deliver if you're going to tease us like that.
0: What is the mix
1: between
0: host content versus music content? And has that evolved since you've been running the network?
1: Yeah, it has. I think the tendency is we can speak too much and deliver too much speech content. And the reality is that most people, you know, you ask 10 people on the street why they listen to the radio, nine of them will say because they love the music. So we might have started off with 30% speech content, 70% music. And then now we've probably moved to more like 80-20. So we earn the right to speak at the right times. And when we do, we've got to make it as impactful as we can.
2: Am I right in thinking that when you first started, one of your aims was to have the lowest number of repetitions of songs?
1: Yeah. So there's two things that we stand out on that. One is yeah, music repetition. So the lowest music repetition by a long way And then the other one is the level of advertising that we're running. So the average radio station in the UK holds about 11, 12 minutes an hour. We hold about seven minutes an hour. So quite dramatically different. And I'll still meet our audience and they'll be like, oh, you've got so many adverts. Little do you know, half, mate, half what the rest do. Yeah. Trying to earn living over here as well. So Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Give me a chance. How do you split up the
0: advertising? Do you do like one big block in the middle or several small blocks? Because over here, I've seen a few different models, but I'm curious if there's anything that's like
1: happening behind the scenes. We do one big block, but I'm fascinated with like where's the best time to get your adverts away in the hour. So we do one, I believe it's right at the top of the hour. So just after the news, and then it will go into our ad break. And yeah, we've toyed with splitting it up. There must be some science in that. I'm not entirely sure of that myself. Fascinating stuff. And on the music
0: versus speech and just host content, I know with music, you have to pay some royalty stream in order to play the song. Is that material at all in terms of changing the economics of the business? I'm not really sure what the actual cost is to you to play that song and broadcast it. And if it makes much of a difference if you're going 80
1: 20 versus 50 50, does that change the business profile that much? Good question. Yeah. So what happens is, a few times a year, you get audited in terms of what songs you're playing. And then what they do is you have to pay about 4 or 5% of your annual revenue. You have to send across it to PRS and PPL. And they basically then send 90% of it to Ed Sheeran <laughs> and then split the remaining 10% up among the rest is basically how it works. So it's quite a significant amount. And it's all based on yeah, which songs you're playing and when, and they audit you occasionally to see what's going on. How did you get over the cold start problem? So you
2: found that the opportunity this with builders, building them a radio station. Like, How do you get your first thousand listeners
1: on site and just start building that up? Man, it's so difficult. I would say five years until I really felt like we had a proper brand because you've got issues on all fronts. So one, you don't have a perfect product. No one has a perfect product to begin with. And so we launched and there was a hell of a lot of work to do to get to the position where it was kind of fulfilling that ultimate vision i had for the product it was good but certainly needed a lot of work and then you know i raised some finance so we had some resource but the reality is let's imagine a tradesperson who might have listened to radio 2 for the last 12 years or 15 years of their life and you're trying to a make them aware of fix which costs money and then b try and change that habit to listen into the brand so You've got a challenge on that front in terms of how do you build your audience? And then lastly, from a commercial perspective, one thing I learned quite quickly is that marketing managers, directors do not see their marketing budgets as a sort of investment vehicle. So as much as I can go and meet them and say, look, guys, this is my vision. You can be a part of this. This is where they're going. They don't see their budget like that. They say, show me how much you've got your reach. And let's agree on a cost per thousand, and then we might do some business together, so it was difficult at the start because there wasn't a large audience there, and there was some, and it grew and it grew, but it was quite small to start off with, and so it was hard to get brands to buy into what we were doing, so it was tough, it was tough. You know that saying there's like light at the end of the road, there was like the faintest bit of light that like occasionally you saw every couple of months, but the rest of the time it was pretty dark. <laughs> The one thing with builders is you
2: kind of know where to find them, although they'll be spread out all over the country. Were there anything tactical that you did that you try and like at least show them who you are as Fix and get them to switch over their radios?
1: Yeah, you're right. It's nice that we had a product that was specifically aimed at tradespeople. So at least you had a very targeted demo that you're going after. And also we know where they are. They're on building sites. So yeah, one of the biggest campaigns we did is we gave out about 30,000 free bacon sandwiches. We had three vans. The goal was to drive around every building site in London and sort of hold the bacon sandwich away from them. Then they had to swap their radio across to fix. And then we would give them the bacon sarnie and go on to the next one. And that was great. It was really personable in a world where everyone is hit by digital ads and billboards to have a one-to-one conversation with one of my team, talking to them passionately about our brand. That was a real positive start and definitely got some traction in the early days. When you look back now, if that
2: was an inflection point, what were the other kind of inflection points that sent you along the road, as you were saying, of like building a brand that resonated with your audience? And then we can come and talk about the commercial partners after.
1: It was time, just sticking at it, not running out of money, sticking at it. There was a few really big ones, like this is more recent. We were a regional brand for five years where we broadcast across London and Manchester. And then, May last year, we jumped up to a national broadcaster, so we expanded onto a national license and that was a huge turning point in the business. You know it significantly increased the potential reach of the brand, and awareness rocketed after that. You know our strategy became all about community, so how can we tap into this community? So we did a crowd fund when we expanded nationwide where we raised about a million pounds from within the trade and construction industry so We're blessed to have tradespeople that have put their hard earned cash into fixed radio that are now invested in us and they want to see us succeed and help us. Things like that have been able to take this brand to the next level and really create a sense of community, which has helped massively. So that was big. And then PR became a big part of our strategy, both a trickle of just getting awareness of the brand into these major media publishers, but also we went for a strategy around stunts where. I've got a specific agency that have the brief of how can we make Fix Radio famous for something. So they're only allowed to put an idea forward if it has a chance that Fix will be famous. So I'll give you the last one. We had a story arc on the station about trying to find Britain's filthiest radio, paint splattered radio. I'm sure you guys have seen these radios on site like covered in paint and all sorts. So we were like, right, let's find the worst one. And we got all of these ridiculous images sent in and then we snuck into a national gallery in London and we put it on a plinth and we had like Barry, you know, painting and decorator from the 1980s. And then we had all of these people walking past it, peering in, fascinated by it. And it was great. We were in the sun and the star in the mirror, all of these big British red tops. So that was really good. So yeah, PR has been a big channel for us. Definitely.
0: That's an awesome campaign. That's one of the better ones that I've heard. And so many of them can get kind of boring and flushed out as the same digital stuff. I love how many real world things that you guys have done to build the brand awareness. Something you mentioned before was basically upgrading or graduating into a national station. What does that actually
1: entail in terms of do you need approval to do that? Is it a certain cost? Yes, you need a national license. There's only a finite number of them. So there's only about 25 or 30 national DAB brands. and these things are sought after and the opportunity to get hold of one probably comes around every two or three, four years. So you basically need someone that decides strategically they don't want it anymore or they run out of money and just have to get rid of it. And then we were in the right place at the right time. And the radio industry in the UK, there's sort of two or three major players and there's not that many independent brands like Fix anymore. So I think they were happy to give it to like a brand like ours that has grown out of nothing that isn't owned by one of the big boys. And it was a bit of a success story in the industry, I think. Do you want to share what the damage is? One of those with the the cost is? I think I can't actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what I will say is it's about seven times what you would pay for a London license. So overnight, let's just choose random figures. Let's call it 10 grand is what a London license is a month. So overnight, you go from writing a check for 10 grand a month to 70 grand a month. And so obviously you think, okay, well, cool, you've got a lot more extra reach and the commercials should follow it. You don't quite know how quickly that will happen. It's quite a significant jump up. And yeah, there was a few sleepless nights around that period, definitely. Well, the natural next question is, did it happen? Did we
0: see seven times the jump in audience or something along those lines where you saw a massive pickup once you went national?
1: Definitely a good pickup. You had challenges. So I had these fears where I'd like phone up brands having committed to this license and go like, oh, good news, we're nationwide now. And they'd say stuff like, oh, I thought you were already were nationwide. And I'm like, no, I've just spent all this money. So luckily there was really good awareness of what it meant to be a national brand, which was cool. The challenges that you had to go by, as much as this is a great opportunity and the brand might be excited about it, they might be committed already for the whole of that year. And so they're like, right, there's chat again in January. And, you know, it might not necessarily fit strategically. So definitely it was well-received, but it's probably taken about 12 months to really reap the benefits of that expansion. And we always knew it wouldn't happen overnight, but it was more of a gradual increase. With podcasts, we tend to sell
2: on a per podcast basis. With the radio, do you sell, is it just fixed selling slots across the day or do you sell it on particular hours or in particular shows? How does that
1: work? So it's built around cost per thousand and the main revenue streams are commercial adverts. So talked about those seven minute ad breaks, you would sell adverts within that. And people might pay a premium to have their ads go out during specific day parts. And then you're selling sponsorship. So all of the main shows would have a headline sponsor. And within that, you might be able to sell features and competitions and things like that. They're your core revenue streams. You've got programmatic revenue on your digital streams. So the people listening via your app and via your website, you can sell programmatically. And again, that'll be based on a cost per thousand. So that's typically how it works. Yeah. The key thing for us is, you know, i talked about the seven minutes an hour compared to the other guys, 11 or 12. Because we've got such a targeted route to market, we're able to sell our airtime at a massive premium for that. It's made our business a bit more commercially exciting. Was there anything beyond the data that helped sell to
0: potential advertisers? Because when you have a niche audience, it's very clear what you're trying to do and who you're trying to go after. But sometimes getting that message across is a little bit difficult. Was there anything beyond just being able to show it with data or bring them some type of
1: evidence? How did you actually get traction? I used some American enthusiasm and passion. <laughs> I would put it down to 70% that. The reach is obviously one part of it. But I think the key thing about us is, and I don't know whether this is transferable to other media brands, but there's like an anxiety from a lot of brands that their brand is not perceived as like one of the guys or girls on site. They feel like they're not an authentic brand and they want it to be seen as the cool and the go-to brand. So what we sell is, because we work with like 10 or 15 of the most influential tradespeople in the UK that are authentic to their very core, we allow brands to position themselves in and amongst those types of people. And that has huge value. They love that. So it's not just a numbers game. It's like, there's all well and good delivering reach. But if it doesn't affect buying behavior, then it's not worthwhile. So by positioning their brand alongside these influential characters, it can really affect what goes on on site and where they're buying and who they're buying from. Because
2: you're so targeted on the commercial side, I presume you've spoken to basically everyone or a lot of the people that would end up spending money on or through Fix. How do you think about that challenge? Do you just naturally scale together? Like the bigger your audience get, the more they should be spending through you, or do you start to look at other people who might want to reach tradespeople? Obviously, there are other. Consumer products that trade people would also be buying?
1: Yeah, really good question. So I think there's still a long way to go, even within pure trade brands. We work with maybe 60 or 70 active clients, and I reckon there's probably 500 that we could be working with. So there's still growth to be done on that. For the ones that have bought into us, then as the audience grows, we can obviously unlock incremental revenue in line with that. And then one thing we haven't done is start tapping into revenue opportunities that aren't low hanging fruit so they're not specifically aimed at trade they're just aimed at mails in general so we know tradespeople obviously buy cars go on holidays so we haven't really unlocked that or tapped into that and that's an area that we're working on at the moment to try and reposition ourselves and try and help unlock some of that revenue
2: with going national as you said is a big decision to make in the first place but then it also attracts some natural media around that decision and the crowdfunding and then gives you an opportunity almost a one-time opportunity to really do something big in terms of marketing. Is there anything you've done alongside that, different from some of the stuff you mentioned earlier, to reach that national audience and to get yourselves out there?
1: I think the best campaign we've done this year is, and it's actually, Matt, Have you familiar with Z100 in New York? Oh, yeah. Big time. I watched a documentary about them over Christmas where they had this brilliant They were like bottom of the league tables, right at the bottom. And then within like a ridiculously short time period, like 75 days, they became the number one station in in New York. And there was a few things that they didn't get lucky, but they were quite unique in terms of the way they programmed their station. But they did something where they really engaged their community, where they said, right, everyone, we're bottom, right? And we want to become the number one radio station in New York. We need your help. Get behind us. And they kind of empowered their audience and got them all behind the brand. So our take on that was we've got something called Fix Approved Site where we've kind of made it up. It's a made up thing, but you can have your site officially Fix Approved. And in order to do that, you send in Fix Fan to our text number and then we send you out a merch pack with a load of Fix Radio merch, van stickers, mugs, t-shirts. We did that and then we just got inundated by text messages and then just flooded the marketplace full of merch. And I think that was a great way of getting our brand out there and getting our audience helping us with that. That was pretty cool. And just back on Z100, they did this awesome thing where they're like broadcasting live from the top of the Empire State Building. And they were the only brand that did it. And everyone broadcasted from the top of the Empire State Building, but they just owned that. And it was a really clever tactic. I've got a big love for them. They've inspired us massively.
0: Yeah, I just looked up that documentary cuz I was wondering to myself when did that happen cuz they've been basically a fix in my life for a really long period of time. So,
1: many of those lessons are timeless, right? It's all around perception. But yeah, I'd recommend watching that. It's a great documentary.
2: Congratulate you on your American accent as well. That was good. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> I know here in the US there's starting to be a bit more of like live events or getting out to sites, bringing people together. Is that something that you've leaned into at all? And I mentioned it because it's becoming increasingly popular in podcasts to have the hosts do live events and try to bring together an audience. I see
1: it sometimes with US radio stations. Has that been a focus at all for you? Yeah, it's definitely starting to be. We now, each of our shows, we're doing live events where the audience can come into the studio and meet the hosts and have some beers and pizza and that kind of thing. And then my big vision is we want to do like a massive festival where we bring the entire trade and construction industry together. And I think given our big aim is about building a community, I think that would be a great way of doing that. It's definitely on our eyes now and something we really want to
2: do more of. How much do you ask your presenters to get out there in amongst the community and like build their brand? And how do you think about their brand individually versus Fix's brand as kind of an overall structure?
1: I think naturally they talk about their involvement in fix and they can kind of draw in their own audiences to fix radio. We don't have much involvement in terms of what they're doing on their own channels and we trust them that they're going to represent the brand well. And we work with really top guys that are very professional. So there's not a huge crossover, but all of them have really good followings themselves and have done a great job at that. So we're quite fortunate to be able to tap into that. You've mentioned brand a number of times. And you said at the beginning,
2: it took a long time for it to get to a place that you were happy with it. And it was aligned with the vision that you had from the very beginning. Where would you like rate it now? And what do you still need to add to it for it to be
1: in the place that you're really, really happy with it? I think going back to that original challenge, it was two things. One, I had an experience on site where I spotted a gap in the market and had a vision for a brand. And then you have to bring people alongside you that can't see inside your head. And it's quite hard to get people to deliver on that vision. And that just takes a long time. So that was a challenge. But the other really interesting challenge was there had never been a radio station worldwide aimed at tradespeople or any vocation for that matter. So you had plenty of people that you could bring on that were incredibly experienced at radio. And you had plenty of people out there that perhaps had produced content for tradespeople on like a print platform or on social media. But there was no one in the marketplace that had trade experience and had radio experience. So that was a real challenge trying to piece that all together. Bit by bit, so we've done loads of focus groups, lots of time in the marketplace speaking to people that listen to Fix, listening to how we can make it better, what they don't like. I think we've got an awesome brand now. And we hear that the whole time from our audience who seem to really enjoy what we're doing. So I think it's really good. Can we make it better? Absolutely. The day we think we've got a finished article, we're in trouble. So we have got to keep thinking how we can make it better. And it's mainly just spending time with our audience and listening to what they have to say. And then we react to that. such a unique
0: niche where you're on site for these extended hours. You have you know radio on, you're listening to that in the background. Do you think there's other niches like that that exist around radio specifically? If somebody was had a radio background on in my office, I probably would have smashed it with my foot. It wouldn't have been as welcome. But do you think there's other categories or niches of listeners
1: out there that are missing this? It's tough. I've obviously thought about that a lot now that fixed radios seem to have worked. I think none quite are the same as tradespeople in the fact how much they do listen. Nothing can compare with that really. But also you've got to think, right? How do you make your product distinctive? The wonderful thing about tradespeople is that there's so much scope for content. So they love their tools. You've got things like supply chain issues, like employment. There's big topics around mental health. There's so many common things that the average tradesperson would enjoy listening to. Whereas if you think about other vocations, I don't know, hairdressers. I don't think you've got that range of content options, and you, I don't think you can make the product distinctive enough. So I think Tradespeople is the best. There might be others out there, but I don't think any are quite the same as Trade.
2: dentists come to mind, but I think they have the same issue that you've just been talking about.
1: They've got the radio on all the time, don't they? More of a quiet,
2: passive, classical music type of thing rather than... <laughs> Definitely. That'll be classic FM, bit of Radio 4.
0: <laughs> yeah. You got like lobby music too in general. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking of the, uh, I think you guys call them cabbies over there. Yeah. The drivers, but that's a unique group
2: of people, I would say.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if you know LBC in the UK, but that's basically cabby radio. They absolutely love that.
2: Yeah. Can't penetrate that piece of the market. As you thought about sort of layering in other revenue streams into the business, which ones have you done or like look most promising to you that you could share?
1: Yeah. So, Recently, we've started some affiliate revenue streams. So we looked at an average tradesperson and what the sort of services they use in their daily life. So things like insurance, van wrapping, clothing, HR, accountancy, all of these sort of things they need. We've obviously got a trusted brand now. And so what we've done is we've gone out and found third parties that offer services in those areas. And then we generate leads for them. And we've kind of white labeled their offering. We've called it all in one. So you can find all of those solutions in one place and we can make some incremental revenue through that. We've actually been doing this from the start, but we do promotional activity. So we'll travel around building sites or put breakfast mornings on it, builders merchants. And you know, a brand might come to us and spend some money on radio and complement it with some promotional activity. Whereas we've started like an e-commerce shop. I mean, really, I see that as a brand building exercise. So getting more of our merch and branding out on sites. They're kind of the main ones. But look, we just got to stick to what we're good at, which is our radio product, And there's plenty of growth within that. So we're not getting too distracted with these other things. Yeah,
2: and you're still the fastest growing radio network in the UK. So just keep the foot to the floor on that. As we kind of start to wind up, as an outsider in media, before you started this, similar to us, what would you say to someone, if someone came along to you now and said, Lily, I'm thinking of starting a radio station for dentists. Talk to me about just media in general. What would you say to them?
1: I would say this, you either need critical mass or you need to be hyper-targeted like targeted at a particular niche. And nine times out of 10, I can't speak actually outside of radio, but in radio, they get lost in the middle where they don't have the critical mass in order to generate enough revenue and they're not targeted enough. And so we're not going to have the critical mass of these big boys, but because we're so targeted, we can still make our business function. So it's got to be one of those two things. Yeah, that's
2: awesome. Thank you so much for sharing Fix Radio with us. I followed your journey from afar for a long time. And it's been amazing to see. So I'm glad you pushed through those early painful days and got to the point you are now. I wish you all the best going forwards.
1: Cheers, guys. Great to be a part of it. And yeah, look forward to listening to future episodes of the podcast. Radio for Builders. What did you make of that? I loved it.
0: The true story is when you first sent that to me, I looked and I thought, builders like business builders. And then I dug in. I was like, oh no, this is great. I just love the story about finding this niche that is underserved in something that they consume a lot of. So, like, builders underserved in radio, and they're consuming a lot of radio. It was just like so obvious to me. Like he said, after we had stopped recording, but so obvious in hindsight, but hard to appreciate in the moment. And I was trying to pull out like, okay, what are those lessons that we could apply for ourselves? And it's a little bit tricky, but I'm curious, did you have anything like that
2: you immediately set up? That's something that we've never thought about doing and would work pretty interestingly. Some of these marketing stunts, particularly the one with the radio and taking that into the, the National Gallery, that's just incredible. And builders are much better at laughing at themselves than investors or business builders. But we could do some really funny things, like taking the Mickey out of us as, you know, investors and business people and like doing some marketing stuff around that. There are creative ways where you don't have to, you know, like buy a million ads on Facebook, but you can kind of get yourself into the national, the local papers and push the Colossus brand or even in the trade publications in our industry. Finding the sweet spot of taking the Mickey out of yourself just enough, but not too much is tricky. And obviously, when you hear something like that, it's like, oh, that's such a cool idea and really obvious. But again, difficult to execute well. I love that they do
0: all the stuff in person. Like That's one of my favorite things, because everything's done digitally now. And I understand why. You get reach, you get more reach for cheaper cost. But there's something to handing out bagel sandwiches, bagel sannies. Bacon sannies. Yeah. bacon. no not bagels, they're bacon. Excuse me. Oftentimes served on a bagel in the morning here in the US. Those things I think are awesome and they matter a lot, especially in the early days for something like that, where I could have easily seen that that brand being like dismissed. You say that about the builder community in terms of being able to laugh for themselves, but they would also be very quick to dismiss something that's not authentic. So in order to like get that authentic badge, you know, approved by that community means something. There's just something very cool that they've done and especially with like the physical
2: proximity and physical. Outreach that they've done, yeah. It's it's really easy because you're so far from your end listener in podcasting or radio. It's very easy just to become insular and think, well, like I don't need to ever meet my audience because we deliver this thing digitally; they receive it digitally. Like there is very little need for a physical interaction, and they're all scaled products. Like when you have a podcast, your goal or a radio is to have as many listeners as possible. So the thought of doing something in person goes completely against that. Because like, well, I can only fit 50 people in the room or whatever it might be. Like, what's the point in that when I'm trying to serve 5 million people or whatever? So I, I totally agree. There are obviously tons of benefits to doing the in-person thing. Like the fact that, you know, as you said, you can find the niche, you can say, hey, builders are underserved in terms of the radio, but then finding builders that will be good on the radio and training them up. I know the stuff around content that Lou was talking about, like could just picture his program director as he was kind of mentioning how like straightforward the solutions are these days to put together a 24-hour radio station with a head in his hands being like, oh my goodness, I can't believe how easy he made my job sound when it's unbelievably difficult. He clarified that. He
0: made sure to mention that he was probably underselling it. That sounds like uh, somebody who's speaking from experience where you're uh,
2: grieving along with that unnamed program director. If you go on a podcast, please be sure to say that my job is extremely difficult. <laughs> That's what I'm asking for. Make the complex seem
0: very, very simple. I do think that's a fair point. You got to get the right talent, too. There are so many terrible radio people here in the US, like excruciatingly bad associated with the music stations. I always wonder, like, do they want me to not like this person? Because it's just like insanely painful. Whereas with that, I have to imagine they're going for a very different type of relationship between the listener and whoever's on the radio. It was also interesting to hear like, how they've transitioned to more music over time, too. Those are like little dynamics of that market that I'm always curious about.
2: I would love to go in and understand how they queue up the music to play and make sure you don't have repetitions. I know the system might be straightforward to use, but like the nuts and bolts of that would be really interesting to me. Do you ever make like a playlist in your life? I know, but is someone making that on a daily basis? How do they make sure that there's enough variety in there, but not too much They're within the circle that builders want to listen to all that kind of thing? I actually think you're making this part out to be way more complicated (laughs) than it really is. (laughs) Maybe you're right. There's something in there about complexity. I want to find it. Yeah. I mean,
0: playlist you pick which order the songs play and I don't know. You have a wedding coming up, so you're going to
2: figure this out (laughs) one way or another. There is a very tangential link I want to make and you can roll your eyes at me. But I was listening to Mark Zuckerberg on Lex earlier this week, and he talked about how Facebook was not ever a sure thing. And at about 100 million users, they like really stalled and they were struggling where they're going to get their growth from. And ultimately, the thing that really unlocked the next 100 million was their international expansion. And he said that like, we really dialed in how to grow overseas. And that was a huge unlock for us. It made him think more about Instagram of like, I know how I could grow this property because they're basically US-based at the moment. And we have kind of an international growth playbook that I could Use with that product, and I think it would be the same as as how we did it with Facebook. And thinking about Louis's business with Fix, of like, and we talked about this at the end of you know, which other niche communities could you kind of run the similar playbook that Fix has done for builders in terms of like just being really authentic to your audience, getting people from the industry on the airwaves, training them up because you know how they respond to radio presenters, and then obviously linking your audience with the tradespeople in that industry. They have an opportunity there, but obviously. It's difficult, particularly when you're not in the field. You know, he was on a building site when this insight came to him. It's difficult. You can't go and test every other industry and be like, okay, what do they do on a daily basis? That seems um, like there's a missing opportunity. Interesting. You say that.
0: I actually think that the Facebook, Instagram analogy isn't perfect for this because those were so mass market. This is so niche that a lot of the tactics that you would use in this niche would not apply to dentists or pick whatever profession you want to pick. And in the back of my head, I was thinking he would be better off figuring out different ways to grow within the builder niche. So it's like, maybe they do something video related for after hours or get more involved in like the end products that they're selling and like get better tools. Just think about it more as like he understands this demographic really well. And I actually thought his expansion opportunities might exist more in the chain of builders than it would bring this to a different chain. I was assuming at first that it was going to be a playbook that you could apply elsewhere. But yeah, that was my interpretation, actually.
2: Yeah, that sounds a lot smarter than mine. I'll give you credit for that. And I think you're right. Like Maybe he can just sell better hammers than the rest of the industry or something else. And like, there's a world in which someone would want to buy their distribution arm like to sell their products through. I don't know whether he's been approached. I'm sure he has by a number of different people, but that would seem like an interesting playbook for other people. I'm sure he would fight for his independence.
0: 100%. And also just the knowledge and ability to reach those people. And there's a lot of value that he has existing within that ecosystem. And once you think about construction industry more broadly, there's all types of stuff. There's a lot of money that rolls around. So you can think about how far that extends in terms of people having interest in that market.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Anything else from your side? No, really enjoyed this one. It was kind of niche, different medium, but I love the story and it set off more ideas. I don't have a great way to apply them all to our business, but it has me thinking, which is the most important thing with one of these episodes is, do I walk away
2: with some brain food to think about? But maybe the clearest example of being really focused on your niche and your audience, because it makes everything a little bit easier in terms of like who your brand is, who you identify with, like, what are you doing this for? We've seen that so many times with podcasts, like starting a new show. Just keep niching down until you can't get to a more specific target audience. And like, you can't learn that lesson enough, I don't think. And from a personal point of view, I've known Louis for many, many years. So it's been very cool to watch him grow this business and um, cool to talk to him
0: felt like a true outsider as he signed off and said thanks d you gotta get up here for a pint (laughs) yeah i felt like i was you know a true american just watching from the sidelines that was cool to see the bromance going on there
2: well i'm glad you didn't say bagel butties on the call i that would have been i'd be mortified for team colossus (laughs) i spoke a lot less because i didn't want to misspeak let's put it that way all right good stuff see you next week see you
0: next week